I was talking with, I was talking with somebody at work today. For some reason, we were talking about Makaton, which is like the like form of sign language. And I was like, oh, so would you use that instead of American Sign Language? And the guy I was talking to was like, well, over here we'd use British, British sign, sign language. language. And I was like, okay, all right, you know what I meant. I was like, come on. <laughs> if any of us knew sign language, <laughs> yeah, we would know British sign language. Yeah, exactly. Like, tell me that in British sign language. <laughs> Oh dear! Well, All right. Good, well, um, we're back, Dan. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. welcome Congratulations to, to your Atlanta Braves. <laughs> you piece of is that shit. my new team now? It's the it's the country's new team. Okay. Man. Everybody yeah. has always because loved them. Who are they playing? That fucking Astros. Okay, so everybody hates the Astros. Everybody hates the Astros. Yeah. Okay. If you're if you're not hating the Yankees, then you're hating the Astros. Yeah. Isn't it? I, I it's possible to have first. equal uh, <laughs> have ample <laughs> hatred for both teams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... Are they in different conferences, leagues? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So American League, National League. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of a, like, washout, that last game, wasn't it? They got beaten. I, uh, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Can't recall, actually, what happened. Don't put it for me tomorrow. <laughs> I did go back it's and listen. They were, they were onto the first game of that... <laughs> The World Series today, or yeah. yesterday. Yeah, yeah, last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, the pace is relentless. I know. Okay, well, it's going to get rained out tonight, so what are you going to do? Um, but I did go back to last week's episode and hear myself say, uh, I'm that. not worried at all. Ha, 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 ha. Dodgers are a much better team. Uh-huh, what uh-huh. are you going to do? Baseball, yeah. folks. I don't know. That's yeah. it. You won't have to hear me talk about baseball again until there's no baseball next season, and we just become a labor negotiations podcast. So, <laughs> there you go. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It'll probably be more in keeping with the theme of the podcast if every week at the beginning <laughs> yeah. we talk about how the how yeah. the negotiations are going between the players' association and whatever, yeah. instead of just me being like, "Hey, Dodgers, yeah. uh, pretty yeah, good." Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll probably. definitely know what collective bargaining in the context of baseball <laughs> means by this time next year. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think we've officially made it, Dan. Last year was our official one year thing, right? One year anniversary for the show, but. It's official because you've planted your broad beans, so we're back. <laughs> yeah, I have indeed planted a rather large amount of broad beans. So it's all no till. Good luck to them. Good luck. Godspeed. Yeah, yeah. Godspeed indeed. Yeah, I gotta plant mine. We were talking about the withered bean and how, like, supposedly you can plant the withered bean, but all my beans are all withered. The ones that I saved from last year. So I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith, but we'll see. Hmm. Anyway. Well, my shop bought beans were a bit withered, so yeah. It's a good sign. Yeah, you might be okay. Yeah. Maybe like mix half and half or... Yeah, true. You could plant some and see if they come out and then you can still plant yeah. some more. Yeah, maybe November, some other type. I guess. I think I planted mine really late last year. Yeah, yeah, same. Mm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> You're in for another 40 weeks of bean <laughs> yeah, updates, it would yeah. seem. <laughs> bean updates and labor contracts. Um, briefly, just to be a current events podcast, Dan, um, the actors heard us talking about a potential IATSE strike and they had to take militant action. <laughs> you know what's happened. It's a, it's officially a class war between the actors and the crew members, Dan. The first blood That's has a... unfortunately been spilled. Uh-huh. So, you know. There we go. Yeah. We are obviously, uh, not on the side of, uh, the Mr. actors. Miss, oh, one, oh, Mr. What? Baldwin. <laughs> Um, no, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows what happened? But it's all insane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't know. The only I was that... I was going to try and carry it into more and more absurd, like <laughs> sort of like revolutionary scenarios, and I was just like, still, we're still talking about quite a, an upsetting and saddening, and yeah. it would be to make it morbid. Yeah. If I were to carry the joke on any further. Yeah. So yeah, we are on the side of. The, the the working uh, justice that we're on the side of justice the only thing dan that would have stopped that situation is a good guy with a prop gun that's all i'm gonna <laughs> say okay it's the only thing that would have helped is a grip uh-huh, with a gun uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah a workers militia with <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. a well-trained workers militia you're gonna replace us with the scabs <laughs> they're like okay wow didn't realize that was this big of a deal oh dear um you know what i think we should just kind of get right into it having yeah. after we've talked about beans and Class war, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. About, et cetera. But I, I, uh, yeah, okay, so we're back. Revolutionary strategy, part two, chapters four, five, six. Um, I'll be honest, 
when I first read at least chapters five and six, I was a little, I think confused isn't necessarily the right word. I was just a little bewildered because it was a lot of like, okay, I don't have as good of a grasp on like the period of 1917 to 1921 as I would like. Um, and it seemed like some of the more modern examples that he uses to uh, compare all of that stuff to is a lot of like British kind of sectarianism on the left, which I definitely don't much of a history with. So I was a little confused. I felt like there's a bit of slippage in terms a little bit. Um, but after going back through it, I think I, I think I really liked it. And I think I did get quite a bit from it. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. And it's brought up some, I think, really important points that we haven't discussed yet on this show. So I'm stoked to talk about it. Um, I didn't ask you before we started. What do you think of just overall kind of the, these three chapters? Um, yeah, I enjoyed them. There was a lot of things that I didn't really know about. It's particularly nice to um, encounter and explore this period of history. There is a prolonged narrative through this section, um, mostly f- through the 20s kind of thing, and to carry on that sort of strategy, strategic questions um through that sort of early soviet and through the common turn period of time so through the 20s and into the 30s um and to look at those in terms of um questions of strategy um pieces of strategy that that were historically contingent to the period but may well have become incorporated into um marxist political dogma mm. yeah, in, yeah the, in, in the intervening 60 years for which yeah. the left has been in the wilderness kind of thing yeah um but yeah i enjoyed it i i agree with you there there is a general narrative through this section but it can sometimes get lost i think for um some of the examples that are brought up or some of the as you say there i don't there are some points where it sort of slips into long discussions of side topics which i feel like obscure to some extent or make the sort of general thrust of the argument sort of somewhat lost yeah. if you're not really looking for it. Mm. So I too felt like I had to do a bit of piecing of the general argument together. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's a reason for that, right? Because it's like <clears throat> so much of the history that he's talking about is so misunderstood, even by even by like leftists, right? That it's like he does need to like set the record straight or whatever first to be like, okay, here's what actually happened. Like, you know, Lenin was kind of operating on these Kautsky's principles, surprise, surprise, and then 1917 happened, but it wasn't like he just turned into evil, bad dictator. Here's what happened, and then he makes some critiques of that. And then in, like, the last couple paragraphs of each chapter, he kind of gets into, like, well, here's what I think, here's what we need to take from this, right? So quite a bit of it is, yeah, you're right, the kind of, like, setting it straight. It isn't necessarily what you think, um, but here's, like, my understanding of the history. Yeah, um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a very good counter-narrative or alternate narrative. Um, I'm sure most people reading through these sections will learn things that they didn't know or um, appreciate perhaps having this narrative presented to them if they're Mm. not, I guess, the member of a (laughs) Marxist-Leninist Trotsky (laughs) sect of some sort or other, in which case they may find um, the description of that kind of politics to be um, irksome, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, what else? Well, I mean, I'd just like to know a bit more about, I should have looked this out, but I'd like to know more about, um, <clears throat> McNair's actual background with this stuff, because he's obviously someone just from reading this who like <laughs> has a bit of an ax to grind, right? Even when, when he like name drops contemporary, uh, left, um, communist organizations, Trotsky sex, that kind of thing. You definitely get the feeling that this is a guy who grew up in all of this, right? I, yeah, I find, I find it very weird reading through these sections. <laughs> like I, I want it to I suppose because there's a some minor degree of slippage. It's it's always a a text about strategy, mm. but sometimes that that strategy appears in a sort of historical form, and then there are suddenly these sort of like interventions where yeah. some contemporary or at least contemporary to 2008 or whenever this mm. book was written, contemporary to the politics, the sort of like socialist politics of the aughts. Yeah names or organizations are dropped in as examples and it's very peculiar to have sort of like these historic figures historic events counterposed to 
sort of like relatively mundane organizations or names from yeah. British politics of that period. There's a peculiar period of time when he's talking about like the um, one of the advantages that the right has is that it will it can always sort of rely on some amount of support from the official capitalist state and such. Mm. And then one of the examples is reference to like George Galloway or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, it's, it's, it's sort of kind of a peculiar uh, intervention if you're not on the lookout for or expecting names yeah. like George Galloway or I don't know, <laughs> like the Alliance for Workers' Liberty dropped, yeah. or something. Yeah. Or some, like there were lots of obscure organizations that I, most of them were like, um, various forms of like Trotskyist front organization or like united front groups and I'm just I'm not sure I've no idea what any of these campaigns are apparently they were yeah. part of British politics in the recent history but yeah I've no idea yeah and you do definitely like he does talk about Draper a bit in this but you do get the sense that he is influenced quite a bit by him um mainly I guess because he does talk about him quite a bit but also just from his understanding of the sect and this understanding, like, I don't know what I was expecting going into this. I don't know if I was expecting McNair to be more towards the right of the communist, like, greater movement. But, like, he does have a pretty firm understanding of, like, like, he, he says a number of times, like, any successful movement does have to be the majority, right? Like, it isn't, he isn't coming out in favor of any, like, what you might imagine is, like, a bastardized Leninist, like, vanguard party, right? Like, he is definitely coming out basically saying that, like, all of this does need to be part of the majority and stuff. Um so I kind of, a lot of, when he does talk about these, like, sects, these micro-sects in Britain, because he isn't really talking about America or anywhere else, um, you do get a sense that's kind of a lot of the vein that he's criticizing them in, um, but also for their their stupid politics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess we, yeah, let's, let's get into it, I guess. Um, I really, really enjoyed the chapter and the bits on war and about revolutionary defeatism. Um, I think when you, even when we talk about revolutionary defeatism, you only really ever think about that in, co- in the context of World War One, right? And the German SPD. But I really like the way he kind of extrapolates that to like now and all of the different wars that have happened kind of like ever since then. And he's not arguing that we need to be, uh, you know, rallying around like every single uh, uh, war that, say, you're in America, every single war that America fights, you need to be like, America lose, all American soldiers die, 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 right? He's definitely not saying that. And the thing that I got from all of this was that you need to be really nuanced in how you understand the wars that your country is taking place in, even when they're imperial, because he gives the example, right, of World War One, and he says that a revolutionary defeatist policy might have been vindicated if the like Schlieffen plan or whatever, like completely failed. And if it was like a war where Germany was on the defensive, right? Mm -hmm. Engels basically says like, okay, maybe you could have gotten away with being like, you know, uh, voting for war credits if there was like invading powers. And okay, maybe the SPD could have supported uh, the state in that sense. But the way things played out, Engels basically, yeah, there's no way that like, this this is okay like you can't vote for these war credits for basically like an imperialist war when they're on the offensive and it is just that kind of nuance that he applies to basically like a whole bunch of different wars which i really appreciated mm. yeah, yeah yeah and it's um the other aspect of nuance is in, in in context of this i guess is like as you as you apply i guess the nuance of the political situation in which you find yourself in speaks to what kind of strategy and tactics one ought to adopt. Yeah. Um, And so much of the sections or the discussions of uh, revolutionary, both defeatism, i.e. like actively hoping for the defeat of your respective national side in a war or revolutionary defensism, which is like what you were talking about in the the context of... Mm. um, things written by Engels toward the end of his death, sort of speaking about hypothetical wars in which yeah. it might be okay to act in a defensive manner, but not in an offensive one. Um, and then he's puts quite a lot of energy and time into going through the various strategic or tactical missteps taken by revolutionary organizations, mostly Trotskyist ones, <laughs> And Trotsky himself, in actual fact, in sort of like 
some of the efforts at application of this kind of theory of defeatism and defensism to wars in which the 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 strategy of defeatism or defensism in the particular context where it applies was adopted as a kind of like dogmatic rather than a yeah. strategic consideration mm. um and it was implemented as i don't know what he calls it like a, almost like a purity test kind of thing like um to sort of work out the purity of people's politics i yeah. suppose um, yeah, I mean, he bring the Vietnam example was, I think, pretty enlightening for how nuanced it needs to be. I like it when he talks about the Vietnam War, and he's like, and it was this kind of like, you know, disruption of the draft process and the mass protests in the domestic front and uh, sowing anti-war sentiment amongst the troops themselves that like led to the uh, end of the Vietnam War. And then he's like, dot, 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 as well as the, the Vietnamese people <laughs> waging this like very long guerrilla war as well as that. Um, but that is such an interesting like thought because I've never really... Because you always hear about, like, fragging, right, in, like, Ken Burns documentaries. But it's like, wow, I can't imagine, like, that level of discontent for an imperialist war in America right now, right? Like, you definitely didn't hear about that in Iraq. And I guess that's because there wasn't a draft or anything like that. But it's a really fascinating way to think about Vietnam, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I guess it's because it's a voluntary effort. That's one of the reasons why they got rid of the draft, right? Yeah, exactly. It was so yeah. catastrophic to U.S., uh the functioning of its military. The functioning of yeah. the U.S. military in that in the context of the Vietnam War, mm. um, and also the, the draft meant that um, the realities of the war and the social cost for Americans. Um, obviously, not to disregard the horrible social costs that it had yeah. to the Vietnamese, but yeah. the, the sort of the costs and the realities of the war to the Americans were so much closer to the social existence of the average American because because there was a draft right and because people were being taken from everyday life. Whereas in the contemporary setting, with a sort of volunteer army, the number of people who even know somebody who's in the military mm. is relatively slight, right? And they're picked from like it's it's. The system of, I'm sort of like speculating now, but the sort of like the system of um, constructing a military force in America now, particularly in the context of the war in Iraq was one where you go to deprived areas, you mm. go to people in prisons or people facing prison sentences and say, serve in the military instead kind of thing. You pick exclusively from poor neighborhoods and populations and you insulate a huge portion of the american population from the reality and the existent the sort yeah. of social cost of the war kind of thing that's the weird paradox about it all though is because it's like you are picking from these like these poorer aspects of american society but then and like you would expect that like obviously all the people like who went and died in iraq were like working class people right and you would expect there to still be this like you know like level of consciousness of like wow what, what i'm doing is pretty gnarly but um I guess maybe that speaks to kind of what he gets into later on, which is like a bit about um, like the imperialist aspect of like different working class nations. And was it Bukharin that he talks about as having like this kind of nuanced view of like working classes in more privileged states, ones that have like a high, are on a higher rung of like, you know, like the world stage, their working classes kind of like have quite a bit to actually gain from like supporting the state and like it keeping its level of like kickassery in their minds, right? And I, I guess it's kind of like something similar because you would expect this class consciousness to be there for everybody that are sent to Iraq and stuff, but like relatively small amount of people and like when you can kind of just pick who it is and be like, here, have free school because you wouldn't be doing anything else otherwise, you know what I mean? Then I suppose not. It's a bummer. Sure, it yeah. Sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess uh, one of the things to point out, I suppose, uh, in the context of Lenin's advocacy for uh, revolutionary defeatism in the context of the First World War and what was intended by that strategy, right, was the idea that you weren't actively supporting the victory of the other side. Hmm. What he was doing was advocating for 
all members of the international socialist movement who were not actively supporting their nation states activities in the war to actively undermine their state's efforts to prosecute the war, primarily by agitating inside and amongst members of the military to basically make the war unfightable. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, there's that that slogan of like turning the imperialist war into a civil war, right? Mm -hmm. The idea was to um, sort of like undermine, almost to undermine the operations of the bourgeois imperial state in the context of a crisis of war kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And the very specific context is one of like, inter-imperialist war right it's like different imperial powers at war with one another um engaged in a war which is like designed to uh advance the interests of an imperial bourgeoisie to the detriment of the sort of working classes of the various countries kind of thing yeah um yeah this is something that kind of like i don't know it kind of worries me a bit because like back then god damn it (laughs) who do they think they are (laughs) back then it's like mcnair makes quite a big point of how people thought some people thought that like world war one it's the end of capitalism right it's this it's an apocalyptic war like nobody had ever seen anything like that but more to the point he brings up like uh great great britain's hegemony on the world stage was waning and people just kind of like convoluted or conf- okay, god damn it not convoluted not conflicted conflated <laughs> <laughs> the uh the power and hegemony of the british empire with capitalism and so when the british empire started to fall everyone was like here we go this is it this is like an insane apocalyptic war it's all about to end and i think that like it is pretty hard to put ourselves in their shoes because like just the way that that war was fought was so unlike anything else. You kind of got a hint of what maybe future wars were going to be like with the American Civil War, but that was in America, and it wasn't anywhere close to being as gnarly as World War One. obviously. It was just so mechanized. It's like, if you're part of the working class, I can definitely see how that would seem like a, a, the end of an era, right? Maybe more of a social era, but obviously not the end of capitalism. But I think the reason that that worries me is because it's like, it just gets into this question, right, of like, how durable is capitalism? And when we... Now, I mean, we have this idea in our minds of, like, not only the coming ecological crisis, but, like, come on, the rate of profit's going to fall, right? Like, it's it's going to get to that point where it ends eventually. It seems like how much more credit can they give people? And if we don't have any farmland left, it's all going to end. Um, and I think, that, I don't know, that kind of worries me because it's like, I would definitely have been one of these people when World War One was happening to be like, this is it. This is the end of capitalism. Let's, you know, let's do something now, please, before we get something much, much worse. Um I guess it just makes you wonder, doesn't it, about, like, how resilient is capitalism? Because it's proven to be pretty resilient, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether we will ever recognize, like, an ultimate end. Mm. Um, I mean, I suppose it's a broader question, right? Like, uh, will the end of capitalism declare itself, or will it have to be forced in some way, yeah. I suppose? Or will there, will there be an apparent end to capitalism, which isn't also the end to... Either the end of the human race, yeah. or um, slippage into another mode of some other form of mode of production, right? Mm. Because like you and I don't, I think, subscribe to the idea that like socialism automatically follows capitalism. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. Like, yeah. Um, there is also the option of barbarism, I suppose, but like <laughs> the option, like another, mo- another, there, is, there, there are the possibilities for other class-based modes of production that are not capitalist to come about. Mm. Um, I don't know what they would be necessarily. Yeah, oh my God. Um, maybe it's for history to reveal them or hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. It makes me think about like, at the end, quote unquote, of feudalism, as we like saw in the Ellen Meekson's Wood, like... Were there some people who were like, all right, we're doing something different. Like, we know. Like, we're buying up all the land. We know that there's something different. And, like, in a transition, hopefully, to socialism, will it be like, all right, you're still going to the shop. You're still using stuff. You just have labor certificates instead of money. But, like, we know there's something. We know it's different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. 
I don't know. We'll see, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I guess the only problem of that is like, um, it sort of contradicts perhaps the Marxist strategic idea that like, it's for the working class to make socialism. Sure. And what you were just describing, there's sort of hinting at a degree of like... From abovery. From abovery, <laughs> as it were. Sure, but I mean, I suppose but if not, you're just like a guy who like... Much like if you were a peasant and you were just like eventually somewhere in your life or somewhere in your kid's life, they start doing wage labor. How different would that seem than if you were just like a guy, now you get a labor certificate? Hopefully a lot different because of your quality of life. But yeah. you know. I mean, we have talked in the past about the transition to socialism being like gradual and yeah. the ele the initial elements of the new society not being massively different from mm. some elements of the old mm. and uh, the new society being born from the old, I suppose, would yeah. all look the same sort of like. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, go. there you go. <laughs> there, you go. <laughs> there you go, the answer. <laughs> um. Uh, so does that get us into splits? Because I think this was kind of stuff that I struggled with kind mm -hmm. of a bit. And I know that it, it does follow on from like, I suppose maybe we should give a bit of an outline of like how this developed into splits, which you might be more capable of doing. But um, this, the question of revolutionary defeatism, just to say like does uh, play into, well, who is on our side? And what does that mean? And should everybody be on our side who calls themselves a socialist? Because... When I brought up slippage in terms at the beginning, this is kind of the first time that I think in like our reading that we've come across like an actual different like communists, socialists, and then it's like opportunists. Okay, what's an opportunist? What's a socialist? What's a right socialist? What's a, what's the center? What's the what does he say at one point? He calls uh, the fudges of the center. It's like is that a like sociological <laughs> grouping? What does that mean? Um, but yeah, I suppose we should talk a bit about the split. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, what does he what? His general line in this and the um, actual justification for this idea is difficult to pass sometimes for me or to to extract from the text, I suppose. Mm. I mean, his general line is that like the the split that was actively sought by Lenin and the Bolsheviks from both the right, obviously, but then also the center as well was justified, but not for the reasons that were given. Mm, yeah. Um, one of the strategic reasons for adopting the strategy of defeatism by Lenin was a deliberate effort to force a wedge. It was a wedge issue almost. It was a deliberate effort to almost break up the Second International with a view to purging it of the sort of like as you said the sort of the opportunists the what mm. McNair would call like the coalitionists the the right what we did what we learned about last time we read this book the right of the Marxist movement who were had adopted and were advocates for a reformist strategy one which was willing to enter coalitions with bourgeois parties one that was more at ease um, representing or administering a bourgeois state rather than one that wanted to set itself at odds with that state. Mm. And I yeah, I don't know whether, I don't know whether, I sort of get the impression that Lenin and the Bolsheviks were so outraged by the, the rights and in a lot of cases the center's support for the war that it sort of sparked this realization that they were going to have to Split. I don't know whether they were looking for an opportunity to split beforehand kind of thing. But anyway, um, it was the deliberate desire to split the movement. Mm. Um, I think the reason why McNair says that it was um, done for the wrong reasons almost was that the Bolsheviks seemed to have this idea that the workers' movement was... I contained these elements which were in some way um, sort of petty bourgeois or bourgeoisified, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of like class elements that could be easily identified and removed, right? Mm. And 
one I, this might be the actual context in which that quote you were talking about before from Bukharin comes up in the book where mm. Bukharin is saying that like it's quite easy for um advanced elements of the working class in certain advanced capitalist countries to actually end up advocating for um I guess nationalist policies or supporting their uh, national bourgeoisie against the the working classes of other countries kind of thing the principle or the 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 importance of that realization being that um the working class is not easily split into yeah. advanced elements and sort of like uh reactionary or uh I don't know what the correct word is. Kind Lumpy. Of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so in forcing a split, the, the, the Leninists, the, the newly founded communist parties, thought that they were going to be able to carry a majority of support amongst the working class and particularly the most advanced elements of the working class. And it just simply did not play out that way kind of thing. Mm. Um, now, McNair is saying that, the, yes, the right had to be um, counteracted in some way, um, but it didn't have the ultimate... It didn't succeed in the ultimate aim, which was to revivify the workers' movement purged of a small um, negative element, I suppose, mm. but rather it sort of split the workers' movement. And as we know, in a lot of cases, like the reformists, the social democrats, managed to maintain majority support amongst large sections of the working class. I mean, we saw this in the context of the German Revolution, right? Like the the communist parties and the people prosecuting the revolution were largely in a minority, at least those people who were consciously involved in revolutionary activity were definitely a minority of the working class kind of thing. Um, and he goes through a big list of cases in which, like... This, so basically, like, um, Lenin starts to advocate this idea of revolutionary defeatism. It seems to be vindicated by the events of 1917 um, and the Communist Party of Russia's ability to hold power into 1918 seems to vindicate them and puts them at the head of this new sort of like um, newly forming international movement, the sort of a new international. Um, and the and Lenin and the the Russian social the Russian Communist Party, the new leaders of the USSR, uh, want to found this new um uh international the third international and they want to form it along principles which directly prohibit the possibility of the degree of um broad spectrum unity that was the the sort of primary hallmark of the second international right mm -hmm. they wanted to form a new international in their own image and they forced the creation they they managed to well splits came about in all of the working class parties of Western Europe or the rest of Europe. Um, but in the majority of cases, as as I was just saying, happened in Germany, like the communists didn't carry a majority. And the majority largely went towards the social democrats in these, or the socialist parties or what have you, in these various countries. Mm. Um, but again, we're talking again in terms of like um, strategy in a particular context becoming dogmatic strategy, right? Yeah. Like we've seen splitting become kind of like a feature of the tactic of um like just purifying like the workers movement. quite yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that's a really yeah it's a really important thing to bring up right because we were saying like the idea was that the split would purify the workers movement mm. um and and still it continues to this day kind of thing parties yeah. split in an effort to sort of pure them purify themselves of degenerate or reactionary <laughs> elements i suppose um yeah i mean i think it's important to bring up too before we get too much into like what what the third international kind of wound up representing um to the working class movement as a whole like what what you what you've just described is like was a real kind of rubber meets the road moment and it's like 
when the revolutions actually happen, like who is going to be on your side? Because it seems like it was all well and good to say that the right and the center and everybody like that are all well and good for the working class and that building up this large mass party is all really good, which obviously it was. And Mike Nair basically starts this book by saying, like, what can anybody else say other than the center? They have this huge historical achievement to their name, right? But like... When the rubber does meet the road, it's like, yeah, those people aren't, they're not going to be on your side in, for, in terms of revolution. And that's like where this necessity of confrontation and conflict comes in, which is so like central, central to Marxist thought, like you're going to kind of see what needs to be done. And when the working class movement, the world over was like, had 1917 like thrust upon them, everybody obviously was going to react to that. And like the majority of people, just by virtue of that being a pretty radical act, were going to be like, whoa <laughs> guys holy shit i don't know about that mm-hmm. um and it gets into the question of like what is unity then like what are we supposed to do um and i'm looking forward to hopefully seeing it resolved because yeah. i don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. there's a few things that spring to mind just before we move on um related to the sort of revolutionary defeatism question i suppose or rather um what you were talking about is two things one what you were talking about before in terms of like um this is some ways being a revolutionary moment or people seeing World War One as the sort of final crisis of capitalism, I suppose, or like the argument that's made in Lenin's text, like imperialism, the highest form of capitalism or whatever mm. I be, and that capitalism had reached its sort of high point and now it was coming apart kind of thing. And what you were saying before, what McNair says that like they, this is an instance of people mistaking the crisis of the British Empire's hegemony over the world for one that was the... De- the general crisis of capitalism kind of thing. Um, but it sort of brings into question, similarly to what we read about in the final chapter of the Miliband book that we read many, many, many episodes ago, um, calling into question the sort of general strategy of insurrection and whether it was actually appropriate for this moment or not kind of thing. Um, I don't know whether we have an answer for that, I guess. Except that like, all I, ha- all I guess all I had to say to that was that, like, there was a, rate, a way, almost a way to read this mistake as being the first mistake of many sort of missteps in this, this sort of, uh, in the strategic narrative or the narrative that's given of communist strategy in this book kind of thing. Yeah. And sort of having to, that maybe, maybe that split has to come about. Maybe that distinction has to be drawn. Maybe this revolutionary period has to be entered into. But obviously, it was a revolution that only succeeded in in a few places. It didn't spread to a sufficient degree that um, uh, that sort of world revolution was achieved. So it left Russia in this sort of like isolated position, which then led them to have to sort of like propagate a particular strategy to the countries of the the rest of the newly formed international, but also Mm. to have to implement particular strategies in their own country, which weren't particularly in keeping with, should we say, like communist or socialist ideals, I guess. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, So I just to put on the table anyway, like the idea that there was this sort of like, I don't know, like a general, what's being presented here is sort of a half and half, like we have to, in these chapters, I guess, the general conceit is that we have to engage with the strategic questions of Leninism and the common turn and this period of history. Um, but we can't adopt their strategic uh, um, propositions or prescriptions uh, in their entirety because it just leads us into mm. the history that we're very aware of, of the sort of sectarianism of the left, the split, the small micro parties. Yeah. And other than those other than those parties, the left being dominated by the right and by coalitionism and the like kind of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny when we think about, I don't know, I'm definitely not someone that, that is like, a, so obviously not like a Soviet Union apologist for everything that happened, right? But it's like when you look back on like everything that happened Post-1917, right, for the working class movement as a whole, whether that be in the Soviet Union or whether that be in, like, every post-colonial state that wound up, like, being inspired by the ideas or whatever. If you kind of frame it with, like, the what, the ideas we came across in the Luxembourg of, like, it's just like, a, it's a wave, right? I mean, like, this was just an outburst of revolutionary activity that helped push working class consciousness forward more than, like, you know, 
a Kerensky government probably would. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I think it's extremely hard and there's no point at all in saying, like, was 1917 justified or not? Because it's like, I wasn't there. I have no idea. I probably would have been like, hell yeah, let's do it. But like, you know, yeah. there, I guess what I'm saying is there's no real reason to like be an apologist for the Soviet Union, but you can't have enough nuance to be like, it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'd rather, I, I have no intention of implying that the revolution, either of the revolutions of 1917 were in some way not justified, mm-hmm. largely because of the, the fact that they were propagated by a large mass of at least the yeah a large mass of the population of a country kind of thing they Mm. weren't something that were just like willed by Mm. either a political party or even one man the figure of lenin kind of thing like lenin the bolsheviks didn't make the russian revolution right Mm. so um in that case in that instance maybe the question is more like the strategic decisions that were made around dealing with those events might be what's in question mm. rather than the righteousness of those events in their entirety. Like obviously yeah. people rebelling against, against capitalism is always a positive. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> well maybe I'll, maybe I'll dial that back. Because like, I, the, your point well yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To what extent were the, was the third Riker reaction yeah, exactly, to Catholic Exactly. Right? So, like, <laughs> um, it's funny. I've been reading that uh, Victor Surge book very slowly. It's called Birth of Our Power. And it's basically just like a fictionalized account of his time in Spain uh, during a, one of these revolutionary upsurges. And it's during World War One, And he's just basically like, the, it's the tragedy, right? Because it's like Spain's revolution winds up failing. But there's, he calls it like the candle on the other end of Europe. Russia is like, holy shit, there's some more of our power. Um but it is like that whole book is just basically him being like, we all thought that was the moment, you know, that's uh, yeah, kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. But this leads us into the question, right, of like internationalism, because he basically what McNair says is that like one of the main problems with the center tendency was that like it, it didn't properly situate itself within the capitalist system. It didn't really have the best theory of the state. And it also didn't. Um, have an understanding of the international nature of the proletariat. And he gets into some really, like, really fantastic um, couple sections talking about what the proletariat is in terms of its class nature that I really, really liked. Um, and he basically winds up making an argument for this kind of unity of class action and, like, of the class movement, not of party bureaucrats or anything like that, but on the basis of the working class's nature in and of itself. Because, like, the great achievement of the center tendency as it existed around the time of the social German social Democrats wasn't this claim, this negative claim, right, of of the mass strike where, okay, we can withhold our power of labor. We can withhold our labor power. That's our great strength. For McNair, the great strength of the center is that it's its ability to organize, right? And that's what a class must do because, like, as you were saying earlier, the right has this thing that it can always fall back on, which is the support of the state the or the support of capitalists or anything like that. Like, obviously, the left does nothing like that. So it has its power comes from organizing um, as a class, basically. And I mean, obviously, like, he's maybe fudging it a bit, this positive and negative claim, because it's like, you do have to have quite a bit of class organization to withhold your labor power anyway. But his great point is, I think, really well made, which is like, for the class to act as a class, it needs to be organized because things are set up right now for the class to be so atomized that it can't. And that's like the great hurdle that we need to get over. And that's why he says that the great achievement of the center was this major organization because like that is the thing, even if it wasn't set up very well in terms of like this theory of the state in which it was operating or the international nature of the class proletariat. Um, but yeah, that was probably my favorite bit from all of this, I think, where he was just discussing the proletariat. And um, yeah, it was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know whether it's in that section, but the thing that comes to mind to me is there's a portion when he's talking about one of the advantages of Lenin's revolutionary defeatism is that it calls into question state power and state authority in really mm. a fundamental way kind of thing. Like it sets the task of the proletariat to be undermining the state's ability to prosecute a war but also to undermine its generally repressive apparatuses Mm. 
And one of the critiques McNair makes of the centre is that they they never went about preparing the working class to have to undertake that kind of work. And I think it's in this section when he starts to talk about um, the idea of like, it only comes up very briefly, but the idea of like replacing the army with a sort of popular militia kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that was sort of like oh God. arming of the people kind of stuff. Yeah. Which the center never prepared the working class for the possibility that they were ever going to have to fall into conflict with the state. Mm. Um, obviously, the right has no interest in doing that. Yeah. Because the right is in league with the state. But the militia movement, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. There oh, are, yeah, right. yeah, there, there are. Yeah, I shouldn't open I mean, up the fact that most people think of militia and imagine a right-wing militia. So. Imagine, some, yeah, imagine something that isn't 99% feds talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, 99% feds, 1% churns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Soon to be feds. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed as well when he talks about the class nature of the proletariat. When he kind of gets into this nitty gritty of like, okay, how is this party supposed to function then, yeah. right? And I really loved the bits where he was like, uh, okay, we would like to have this quote unquote like vanguard party or whatever, this mass party as well, I guess. But like, who are going to be the people that can give their time to this party? And he comes away being like, yeah, it kind of sucks, but it's going to be middle class people because normal people don't have the fucking time to go dedicate themselves to revolutionary activity um and like you can't really ask someone unemployed to do it um and i guess this kind of gets into what we we're talking about a little bit with cliff about like you need to pay these people and it needs to be a professional job but like to mcnair he's basically saying like this runs us into a problem right we need to have people who dedicate themselves full-time to building this movement they're probably going to be like intelligentsia type folks which don't necessarily have um the class's best interest at its heart, which is like the first introduction to the Fundamental Principles book. They just lambast all communists for basically being intelligentsia, which I thought was funny. And we get a good answer to it here about like how you get around that. Um, but the way he says you get around it, I thought was really interesting, was like um, you need to have this autonomy. Because he basically brings up the Bolsheviks as saying like for the majority of the pre-1917 like Bolsheviks like operating um, – and whether this was just a virtue of, like, the state being as repressive as it was, like, the arms of the Bolshevik party were extremely autonomous. They were not this, like, hyper-centralized meme of Lenin, like, iron fist thing. They, were like, had their own newspapers. They could kind of do their own thing. And it was, again, this kind of, like, draperist idea of, uh, of a Marxist center. I think that was, like, the comparison you made when we talked about this. But, like, the way you get around the class nature of these people who organize the party is this necessary autonomy. And I thought that really vibed with like a systems theory approach, one that is just and one that makes sense because I brought this up to you right before we started recording. Like it's this question, he's kind of asking a different question than Beer was asking, right? Beer was asking like, how can we have maximum autonomy for the system one because they're the people who can operate it the best. McNair here is kind of flipping that a bit and saying, how can we have maximum autonomy for system one while at the same time allowing them to follow this necessary centralized goal, which is communism, right? Um, I re yeah, that was towards the end of this, and I really, really appreciated it. Yeah, I hope the next chapters are going to yeah. carry on this narrative, as I would imagine they are, <laughs> because there are, we're, we're left as sort of, sort of cliffhanger point, right? Mm. And I think what you described there is my fundamental question that hangs over this whole thing, right? Like yeah. we are presented what he describes as um, a party or an organization characterized by unit, unit, unity and diversity, mm. as opposed to the kind of unity that is fostered by uh, the centralism of the, uh, the, uh, the what well, well, he takes the sort of like the, the leninist party and breaks it down into some key characteristics right like it's the vanguard it's the party of activists and it's a centralist party um and in various ways he suggests that there are positive aspects to this structure he does have some positive things to say about the leninist party and how it's kind of updating the social democratic understanding of what the party is and how it's supposed to operate in capitalist society blah blah blah, blah. Mm. but he suggests that there are all these contradictions in all these areas and one of them as you say is like um 
it do, like the the this but I, I can't really work out whether he's sort of like he talks in terms of there being a positive side to centralism mm. but at this point in time in my current reading and understanding of his principle i'm just going to say like whether you call it democratic centralism or you yeah. call it bureaucratic centralism like nobody claims to be a bureaucratic centralist right so there are some people who are democratic centralists but really you could describe them as bureaucratic centralists yeah. i.e the kind of centralization that's taken place is just like the monopolization of the party by bureaucrats they've taken all autonomy away from the activists the activists aren't really allowed to educate themselves or ask questions they're meant to just be purely propagandists for the centralist party he basically says like this party structure is not adequate to meet the needs of the working class in any way shape or form yeah. so i'm just going to come down it and say that like <laughs> yeah. centralism bad yeah <laughs> yeah we call it democratic if you will kind of thing mm. um and much more important is a form of unity predicated on the possibility for there being this plur plurality of opinion within the working class movement. And I guess ideally what's being touted is within a political party. Mm. But coming back to this sort of sort of systems theory question, like in 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 what in what way is the unity going to be maintained? whilst we foster the degree of diversity necessary to have the kind of work a, a kind of party and a kind of movement which is actually going to um advance the interests of the working class as i think i believe what he's trying to mm. what he's advocating for is that like you need to have this kind of diversity of opinion to actually actually will actually advance the interests of the working class yeah um but i guess the, the question that hangs over all of this is like how do you maintain a, a sufficient degree of uh almost like commitment to the, the the revolutionary to revolutionary outcomes i suppose um whilst maintaining a sort of plurality of opinion because yeah. the the problem of the second international still exists right like there was a problem within the second second international that like there was almost too much plurality and the sort of the 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 reformist right were directly at odds with the interests of the working class, quote unquote, if that's what we're going to mm. claim, lay claim to have knowing. Sure. <laughs> if we, if we lay claim to knowing what the interests of the working class are, <laughs> and we're going to exclude the rights uh, strategy from that, mm. um, clearly the second international was too pluralistic, but at the same time, um, there is this problem of, fostering unity within the working class movement rather than having it splinter or like mm. uh, become sectarian or what have you yeah i mean it's almost like the question of like the law of requisite variety on the concrete level to meet all of the different needs of the working class right um in different neighborhoods and in all these different things i suppose that's kind of like what the diversity of opinion is but it's also like you would need to really strategically think about the things that everybody's got to agree on, right? And one of those, after reading this, seems to be very clearly the international nature of the proletariat. It is like, as much as we want to say that like class consciousness is building, say in the United States right now, with like this latest strike wave, like there are still so few people that recognize or even so few organizations that recognize that this isn't about America, that this isn't about the American working class, that this isn't, you know, I mean, this was the big critique that was made of Bernie, right? Like sort of unfairly, but like not unfairly because I like, get it together, dude, of like putting America first on everything. It isn't about bringing jobs back to America. It isn't about any of this, right? It's about standing in solidarity with like all proletariats around the world because you have the same struggle. And the, the Bukharan bit in this was really well taken because it's like, the American working class wants to keep its role as the American working class, right? It's like when you look at what working classes do outside of like the first world, you go, damn, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of gnarly. Mm -hmm. But obviously we know that that's only because things have to be gnarly. Sure. But um, And we can't declare all those workers some form of degenerate and exactly, like, yeah. have nothing to do with them. One of the things that he's uh, touting as a possibility is that we're going to have to learn to relate to those types of opinion and i think he's suggesting that basically they're emergent from capitalist society right like oh, sure. we're active within 
capitalist society and it's not a surprise that the working class draws lines along the lines that exist as a part of that society you know mm. um and so i guess a lot of it comes back to this sort of like i the sort of like draperist idea of the marxist center right like you have some amount of um but scaled up to some degree i guess mm. you have some amount of like programmatic independence you have some um uh intellectual independence some right to propagate your ideas but at the same time you have a direct relationship to the broader workers movement um but what that what the overarching organization is i'm not really sure mm. um maybe the the lay of the land of the workers movement as we've just described it i.e large sections of the workers movement not necessarily being um quote unquote like progressive maybe that's a that's that's a lay of the land which is not necessarily appropriate to building a large-scale workers movement where we stand at the moment and what we're working toward is the time when we are able to build that workers movement mm. um and we're more in the sort of dra draperist position of like uh, smaller organizations vying for influence or sharing, yeah. propagating their ideas amongst the broader mass, I suppose. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it comes down to that, just the question of like, where's the mass movement right now? Hopefully on its way, yeah. right? Um, yeah, I'm interested in kind of like coming across more of these, like the things that you have to agree on basically, right? To have this, because otherwise if you... If you don't have any, like, strategic goals, like, everybody has to agree on the international nature of the proletariat, everybody has to agree on this, blah, 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 then there's no point in having, like, this center, right? Otherwise, it's just like, okay, everybody do their own thing, dude. Like, wow, whatever, man. Um, so I'm interested to kind of do some thinking on that, um, what these things need to be. Obviously, one needs to be, I think, like, standing against the current state of things, right? And very clearly being, like... You know, the, like, uh, global domination of, like, liberal capitalism, that's a pretty bad thing. <laughs> that is, uh, it was progressive at one point, but it is no longer good, and we want to do something completely different. Um, so, you know, walk down the street and get as many people as you can to believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there anything we missed? Anything that we should be talking, talk about? Um, I suppose, like you said, there are some unanswered questions that hopefully we'll get to when we actually finish the damn book. Um, but yeah. which we will do next which time we, we read do. it yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um, I was again this was like just a brief thing and hopefully we'll talk about this in future episodes more in depth but the idea it was gnarly when you first read it but it's like this idea of like what was it uh, for the 21 conditions was a condition 6 or something like that and it was like yo like come on like have some self defense <laughs> like you guys like be militant you know what I mean like don't just be like you can't come out against reformism and then just be like, um, but it'll all sort itself out and then get your ass kicked by a bunch of cops, right? So, yeah. I mean, this has been an active question for us for a very long time. Like, mm. where do we stand on the idea of it being a programmatic point that we want to abolish the police and the army and replace mm. them with a militia? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what does that militia look like? What is the organizational form that it would take and also what would its aims and objectives be kind of mm. thing like what aspects of the um i guess repressive nature of the capitalist state are we looking to overturn what it's, 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 it's them ambulance. it's an ambulance it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh what 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 role would it fulfill that would be analogous in some ways to the role fulfilled by mm. uh the repressive apparatuses of the capitalist state. Our brave I boys in blue. <laughs> I still think it rocks so much that, like, back home they have the, like, Blue Lives Matter flags, but now they have Green Lives Matter flag, which obviously you could have seen that coming because of the army. Yeah, it was only a matter of time for someone had a Green Lives Matter flag, but now you got Red Lives Matter flags for firemen. That is so <laughs> good. I, like, unironically want one of those. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget the firemen. <laughs> How, how, oh my fucking God, how fucked up do you have to be to have someone be like, you know, Black Lives Matter too. And they're like, have you thought about firemen? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I was excluding the firemen. Sorry. Oh dear. Uh-huh. Mm. 
and the, and the liberals like, you know, there are black firemen as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. Dude, that's just like, I don't know. Like I, the idea of like, whenever you hear liberals be like, um, their only critique of the debate about debate, quote unquote, of like, of like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of like, you know, the abolish or the, even the Melktoast defund the police thing. They go, you know, that's really a bad slogan, so I can't support it. It's like, do you need more of an example for just like the milk toast shit that liberals get upset about when like <laughs> cops are just going into people's houses and shooting people? They're like, well, come up with a better slogan, kid. It's like, okay, go back to the ad agency, all right? Like, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your McKinsey drone comes <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Did I tell you I saw a guy oh, no. that had a, had a, a it was a, I don't know what it was, whether it was like a patch on his backpack or something. I hope he wasn't wearing some kind of like tactical vest in the street. <laughs> and it was like a gray Union Jack and then it had this blue line through the middle of it. That is such brain rot. Oh <laughs> I know, my right? God. Like, yeah, imagine feeling the need to import that piece of like, Maybe what American it mean, culture. I know. Maybe what it means is Scottish Lives Matter. Maybe that's what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, okay. We can okay. pretend But it, presumably it, it would be like the diagonal line. Because you know, it? like on the, it was like the horizontal. Oh, okay. if it was like, is that blue? No, no. Ordinarily, it's like a red cross in the middle. Oh isn't my it? But god! Like, obviously, it was black <laughs> and white, it and then it, it was blue. <laughs> just a blue, just a thin blue line through the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> if it was a diagonal blue line through, I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> They're like, I'm going to deface this flag just so you know I like cops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Well, there you go. Um, all right. Well, I am excited to finish this. Um, if I was more, or- you know what? <laughs> I was going to say if I was more organized, I'd let everybody know what the next three chapters are. But let me just, Jesus Christ, let me just find them. Yeah, definitely go read this book. You can download mm. the PDF easily <clears throat> enough. It's only a few hundred pages. Um, so, yeah, have a look at it. Work your way through it. It's definitely got some nuggets for everyone. And it's readable. Very and it's readable. quite readable. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think for like this in-depth sectory. Not that obvious, well, he isn't at CBGB, so what are you going to do? But, like, for this in-depth discussion of the ins and outs of 1917, the Second International, blah, 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 extremely readable. Mm-hmm. So, 789, the workers' government slogan, <laughs> um, political consciousness and international unity, and then finally, Republican democracy and revolutionary patience. Ooh, revolutionary patience. Uh, interesting. All right. That'll be great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there were quite a lot of sections in this where he was kind of counterposing the sort of like Leninist strategy to a strategy of patience. It was the strategy of patience that was abandoned mm. in favor of sort of like this kind of is a insurrectionary politics. Um, and so maybe we'll get a version of the strategy of patience uh, recontextualized for our present political. Yeah. Stage, I suppose. That'd be nice. Yeah. It is called revolutionary strategy, so that'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> um I'm 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 at the point now where we read more and more about Lenin. If I meet somebody who calls themselves a Leninist, I kind of write them off because it's like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, yeah it's yeah, like yeah. what do you I don't know. I don't yeah. know what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that person doesn't really know what that <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's like what 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 people who have rehashed Trotsky <laughs> rehashing <laughs> Lenin understand Leninism to be yeah. I suppose and that Leninism is the Leninism of like 1914 to 19 well 1924 I guess yeah. but even even that is like a they've taken well like if we if we if we stand to the sort of largely idea that up until 1914 Lenin was like a bog standard social democrat yeah. then he sort of adopted this new strategy after the betrayal of the right and the center in the beginning of the first world war he adopts this sort of uh, strategy unique to his own circumstances exactly. and then after his death people adopt it to make it <laughs> a strategy which is ostensibly befitting of all circumstances yeah um so yeah god knows yeah we gotta get into some trotsky too because he just gets lit up in everything and it's like yeah. hey, come on he's get, come on he's gotta i don't know he's gotta have some kind of ideas, yeah yeah yeah, right? no, like, I, yeah I'd, I'd like to get into it um yeah, it was funny in this context, the way he is portrayed as being responsible for, in some ways, sort of continuing to mm. perpetuate the missteps of the Leninist strategy. Mm. Because he could, he considered himself to have been like, 
wrong in his prior debates with Lenin up until like 1917 or whatever. Yeah. He'd had his conversion to Leninism and then wasn't then willing to break with it in any way. Yeah. Um, even though he can some, in some ways he could see the problems with the problem of unity that had been created or the lack of unity that had been created by this, this split. Um, I mean, partially you get it though, right? Cause it's like, if Stalin was walking around being like, I am upholding Leninist thought. I am, I am, the, I am Lenin reincarnated, dude. I'd be a little bit like, no, <laughs> writing my little Mexican flat. Like, no, you're not. Yeah, I'm the real Leninist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh -huh, uh, dear. Uh -huh. Yeah. If anybody claims to be like a, a, the real pure Leninist, yeah, yeah. roll anything. your eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or tell them to listen to this show. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Um, all right. Well, this has been great. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. Um, we'll be back next week with something, and that will also be fantastic. So uh, <laughs> It always is. It always is. I have no doubt. Is. I used to <laughs> doubt it, but like, I have no doubt like, anymore. Eh, we'll see about this one. It's always great. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we'll be back next week, and um, I don't think there's anything to tell everybody, but I don't think that there is. Um... Yeah, I've been Jack. <laughs> uh, I've been Dan. Yeah. Once again, thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Dan. We'll see everybody next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.